Great to have you with us for another edition of the Strip Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. Thanks for tuning in. I'm technology editor Noah Newman. On today's episode, Paul Doubles of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, Larry Tombaugh of Streeter, Illinois, and John Stevens of Rock Creek, Minnesota take questions from the audience at the 2023 National Strip Tillage Conference in a workshop-style session. Doubles, Tombaugh, and Stevens provide insight into how they've overcome numerous strip-till hurdles and also touch on several topics, including the differences between shanks and coulters, how to successfully incorporate cover crops in the berm, nitrogen management, and more. So let's listen into the discussion led by strip-till farmer managing editor Michaela Paulkner at the podium as I roam the crowd with a mic. Paul, why don't you start us off? Okay, um, yeah, farmer with my brother, uh, Fergus Falls, which is about an hour southeast of Fargo. Kind of different than for many of you. It's always cold almost, kind of clay soil, so some things to work with there that are different. Been at this since uh, 2013. We actually started strip tilling in 07 with uh, some equip funded strip till bars. Did a yield comparison, it was the same as our no-till, so we just kind of set it aside for a few years and then eventually took our fertilizer attachments off the planter, put it on a bar, and I guess that made us strip tellers. Hi, I'm Larry Tombaugh from Streeter, Illinois. It's about 45 miles north northeast of here. Did my first no-till in 1973 uh, when I got home from college, and that was a disaster. Uh, the neighbors got a good laugh out of it, so it was a it was worthwhile in some respects. But then uh, we were working through, I grew up on a 600 acre dairy farm and the cows left and I had hogs and then we had cattle. But my dad passed away early at 66 in 1994 and at that point I took over and we started right in. I was fortunate enough to have uh, neighbors that were strip tilling and so we started strip tilling then, implemented cover crops as we went and so now I'm farming about 480 acres, and uh, we're doing a lot of biologicals and humates and strip-till. And we used to make mistakes on our farm. Now we've renamed our farm Larry Tombaugh Experimental Farms. So those mistakes are now experiments. John Stevens, Rock Creek, Minnesota. Uh, street north from the Twin Cities, about an hour up the interstate. Um, kind of a spot nobody even acknowledges ag in that part of the state. Um, Got the beef herd and uh, trying to bring small, I'll learn how to do small grains and bring them back in the rotation to, to capture some opportunities with cover crops and, and crop rotation. Otherwise, uh, a bulk of the farm is still corn and beans. Since 13, been dabbling with the no-till strip-till. The first two generations of strip-till were just row crop cultivators that we welded up to to make work with an old egg systems air cart. And, because you're conventional minded, like I need to see if this works here. And, and now we ended up with a B&H bar and a Burgalt air cart. And now we're trying to figure out how to do covers and everything with the strip till. Thank you. Any questions immediately from the audience? Uh, thank you. Uh, so, you know, I used to strip till back in the late 80s and then quit in the mid 90s, went to 15 inch corn. Back in those days, of course, you know, we were using markers and it was helter skelter and it really didn't have row cleaners and things, but we did use a shank and it, it was pretty impressive looking corn. So my first question is uh, to each one of you, as you prepare your strips, I'm assuming you do it in the fall, but do you use a shank 
or do you just use cultures? Would be my my first question to each one of you. Alphabetically by heights, what are you doing? Okay, we uh, we started out with, uh, like I said earlier, Equip funded uh, Don Pluribus, and uh, then when we took the uh, opener, we had a single disc opener on the planter for fertilizer, and when we put that on a bar, we pretty much gutted out our, our Pluribus because we found out we were making a, a big strip, which was great, but on our hills, we were getting some washouts. So we made our own version that displaces very little dirt. I mean, it's it's barely a strip, and uh, but it has pretty much eliminated erosion. So in our hills, we do everything in the spring, and uh, uh, we might try in the fall sometime, but so much of it is hills that it's that's been our focus. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this is the first year I actually no-tilled all my beans. But uh, we started with strip till, and as I said, that we had neighbors that had prog progressive bars with uh, fertilizer on and anhydrous, and so they got us into the, the strip till early on. As we progressed, I bought a, an old, old red ball, and uh, we never put uh, dry on it, but I would put liquid with uh, pulling a tank, and uh, we put a couple gallons of fish with 18 gallons of water, and that was pretty amazing. Some of the results, we got our calcium, uh, our first sap test, we were having trouble getting our calcium up, and boy, the sap test was off the charts for, for that. But uh, we're looking to try and, uh, this past year, my neighbor got an, a brand new bar, and I had him put 40 pounds of humic down. We do a lot with humates, and uh, we're looking to expand a few things, uh, getting some other guys that may be able to do it for me this year. but. I don't have my own equipment, so. Uh, spring strip till, with, with the erosion and stuff on highly erodible soil, I think Jody Hughes summed up our area really well with his, her de scientific description of our soil as ick. Um, ick. <laughs> the, in, the, you, in the 80s and 90s when the U of M and a lot of these universities were pushing no-till, one of the older neighbors went down to one of her conferences and said, well, what did you do in our area? And she said, where are you at? And he told her, and she says, keep doing tillage. It, uh, it don't, 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 don't bother. And so we run a spring shank. We, we got up to nine inches of uh, loamy sand on top of infinite yellow clay and it, it gets really tight. And so if I fall strip till, we got the potential of blowouts. Um, but at the same time, the fall strip till has, I've done a few fields of it and, and surprisingly the whole water management has kind of changed um, to where we, that hill doesn't move all the water down to the low spot anymore. So maybe we can try fall again. Um, the fall does allow the berm to get conditioned a little bit, uh, where spring strips is nice because it gives that shatter, really fracture that soil, make a nice seed bed, and then put, put our nutrients down in the spring without any worries of leaching and stuff over the winter. And so, yeah. Have you folks thought about putting some kind of a cover over that berm in the fall? Um, some kind of an air seeder that'll blow right on top of that berm and like an oats or something to help hold that berm through the winter uh -huh. and spring? Or is that not, that's out of the question? Or? Uh, we, yeah, we've tried it. Uh, a victory for us would be when we put our rye on in a strip would, that it actually emerges. So, I mean, we just don't get any growth in the fall by the time harvest is done. So, yeah, we've, we've played with it, but uh, 
it's like so many people, it's cover crops are a challenge for us because we don't have any season. Yeah. We actually uh, use cereal rye and then put the strips in. And, uh, you know, we have really good soil. <laughs> you know, you can really make mistakes and it won't be a big problem. But, you know, I have pictures of me planting with RTK and, and foot tall cereal rye into the strips in the spring and it works well. Um, I would just say too, Michigan State and Indiana are doing a, re a regenerative ag study of people that have been doing it for quite a long time. And I've been fortunate enough that they've asked me to, uh, to talk about it. And uh, so then they came over and did a, a test on our soil. And somebody's gonna have to tell me what 11% carbon in our soil is. I, I think that's good. And 5.1% organic matter. And, CECs of 19 to 32, so I'd probably have a little different soil than you guys. You have soil. Oh, <laughs> I have soil. Do you have dirt? I don't know. <laughs> I pulled the fertilizer tubes off. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of science. Um, and, and so like a, a Joe Gruber kind of thing with his bio stripping, you like what he, what, you know, it made sense to me. It clicked with my brain. And so I, I did it. I, I pulled the the tubes off the fertilizer and so I'll make them from some fall strips, let it blow the covers on and uh, it actually kind of works. And, and I think with a little bit of practice, different species, uh, the like Paul had said, there's a lot of years we can't fall strip to because there's a lot of years that ground is froze before you're, I mean, we've combined beans and snow. I mean, it, it is what it is. And so um, the fall opportunities are limited. And so with the cover crops, a lot of the cover crops are going in a very early corn to, to do anything. And so, um, but that, that worked, I think, with some practice, practice and species selection. We're from Southern Indiana. So if we start shelling corn first September and we run that strip till behind our combine, per se, uh, I think we can get some growth if we have any kind of weather. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, unlike your, your neighbors still tell you you're too far north and too cold and too wet, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> just, just to add to the cover crop thing, we've flown on rye uh, as early as August 1st and as late as October 1st. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really doesn't seem to matter. It's, if it comes up, it comes up. Yeah. In fact, this last fall, we flew it on and basically nothing came up because it was too dry. And we did have a stand, though. It germinated in the spring. And, and uh, we got something. It's never been a wild success, but it's never been an abject failure either. We've that's, well, that's why it's a cover crop, not a cash crop. Yeah. You know, you got to have some forgiveness. Yeah, we've tried to fly on cereal rye a number of times, and more often than not, it wasn't successful. So the, we plant some earlier hybrids for us, 107-day corn or so, 105, 107, take it off and... Uh, harvest it to, you know, 22 to 23%. So we can get, as soon as we can get that off, we want to be knocking that down with our residue digester while there's still uh, juice in the stalks and then uh, seed the cover crop. And then when we get time, we'll get the strips put in. We did do, uh, you know, the old timers, you could frost seed, clover, cereal rise and all that kind of stuff. And so we can take advantage of the frozen ground and, and not create a mud mess. And uh, it works. It works really well, like winter rye and clovers and stuff. It's just a management thing. Then the next year of what you want to do with it, um, you know, time of termination, monitoring moisture, all that, all that kind of stuff. But 
to stop the erosion and strip till with the covers, it's a great idea and it's there. I, I might interject, you know, I said this is the first year I've planted completely no-till in the beans and boy, starting out, you know, April 10th or so, I planted some in the snow, but I was really having trouble and then I had my neighbor come over with his 40-foot roller and he rolled those stalks down and then it was easy peasy. It just went so much better. And when we've been putting the cover crops in the fall, why well, then we'll have him come roll it down, roll the stalks down and it gets the the cover crop a little bit touched with the dirt, so we get a better germination out of that. I like that roller a lot. Uh, for erosion on slips, most of my ground northwest Iowa, it's pretty flat, but going to the waterway may have some good slopes. I got a Don Plavris high speed, and I got an Orthman shank. I use the Orthman for putting in hydrosod. But when I get done on those slopes, may look stupid, I take the track from the tank and I drive across all the slopes. So if I'm gonna have a blowout, it will only go so far. And that's in the fall. By the spring, those tracks are worn out, but it will stop a blowout from going all the way down. And that shank, if you hit a rock, you, you gotta dip it. And with a high speed plowbus, I can go out and freshen. I got a nice smooth feedback. But I just saying, if you wanna stop a blowout, drive across the Field, it may look stupid, but you got to stop the blowout going all the way down the slope. Yeah, one one challenge we have is uh, your hills in Iowa. To me, are they're huge, they're long. Ours are really short and and uh, sharp, so it's hard to do the contour thing because the hill might only run for 100, 200 feet. We have a couple fields that have a hundred foot elevation change, <laughs> and uh, but it's just up and down, up and down. You know, it's all relative. I used to help manage some farms in Arkansas, and that was completely flat. And I was talking to the farmer, and he said, oh, you see that hillside out there? And I said, hillside? Where? He said, oh, yeah, it's nine-tenths of a foot higher out there in the middle there. <laughs> <laughs> Have a question from the Hoover app. They want to know, how are you managing your nitrogen? Oh, that's, that was, uh, we, got, we got schooled again this year. We... Um, had some issues with the planter tractor, so I got too far ahead with the strip teller, and our, our strips got all dried out. And typically, we put on 50 units of N and then all the PK, zinc, sulfur um, in the spring strip. And uh, so I, I stripped it and realized at the end that one of the tubes had fallen off mm -hmm. behind the hitch. Well, we came in, we had no moisture in the strip, so we no-tilled the corn in between the strips, which actually worked really well, came up even. But then as uh, time progressed, that one tube that came off and laid, it basically put all the fertilizer on top of the ground between the strips. Well, now when we came back and planted, we were actually now on top of that strip of fertilizer. And in, in the wetter soil conditions, that surface applied fertilizer was the greenest row by far. I mean, it, it outgrew everything. And in the, you know, where it was better than it, uh, better soil conditions, and it didn't, didn't make any difference. But uh, then, then we side dress the rest of our nitrogen gets put on. So I don't like dry fertilizer, and I really hate anhydrous. So my neighbor had this new machine, and he got 60 acres put on, uh, put in, making my strips with 40 pounds of humic. 
and the engineers were out seven times trying to fix it. He couldn't go through bean ground. So it was getting late and uh, anhydrous was cheap. It was only $1,400 a ton. So I called up the co-op and had them come and put anhydrous on 100 pounds the acre. So I had a strip to plant in and the rest of my bean ground. Uh, then in the spring, shout outs to Jason and Precision Planting. We put uh, quite a bit of stuff on with our planter, uh, put the PGRs through the center of the furrow jet, and then put 31818 with uh, Invita, SoyFX, INFX, some biologicals. Plus, I work with a fellow that makes a product called Whole Shot, and it's got about 14 different products, including concentrated seaweed, so a growthful. Uh, concentrated seawater, bunch of special things. And then uh, I'm convinced that Y drops don't work unless you're Hula or Dowdy and have irrigation. One year out of three, they might work. So we side dress uh, with in placers, which is just a, it's, it's, you can go up to 10 miles an hour and we're putting 45 gallons to the acre. Or so we shoot toward the row and then it's got cover board, so it's, it's covered. And then uh, we're still doing a lot of foliar stuff. I make my own compost tea. And so we're mixing that with uh, a lot of other pro dry soluble fertilizers and boron and stuff and doing foliar things. I mean, I do enough foliar that my wife thinks I'm having some affair with a gal named Hagee. So. Uh, <laughs> we used to be broadcast before, uh, before strip till and no till, we used to be broadcast you know, the typical before planter and then right after planter, and that was your nitrogen. And so from where we were to where we are now, we've reduced, been pretty consistent since 2018, had to be about 25 to 30% down. And so we've been, the best was like 0.7 on an end credit. And for my area and for common wisdom of my area, that's phenomenal um, in context. And, and I like to relate it to myself. Um, so, I go back and forth. I, I do some AMS with the strip till, and AMS is, is like nitrogen, highly volatile, really can move fast. And so uh, with the strip till, we saw that we can really reduce the AMS and still not have sulfur deficiencies. The nitrogen we're learning all the time. Uh, we're trying to move forward, get better. Um, so we're slowly weaning off of a lot of the urea and nitrogen in the strip till and and why dropping on the side? I'm sorry, Larry. Why dropping on the no, sides? You didn't hit me. <laughs> oh, that's what you're sorry about. Um, I get it. And uh, but we're we're also bringing in the the sap testing and the Haney testing to where we can see what nitrogen we have in the soil, what nitrogen we have in the plant, and then also looking at the micronutrients, their interaction. Um, uh, is it the scientific antagonism or something sure. of of that relationship through there? And so. If we can do better on them little things to, to kind of keep moving us forward um, kind of deal. And so, yeah, nitrogen, I'm a mile and a half or two miles as the crow flies from the St. Croix River, which, again, is just north of three million people. Um, our county is 30 percent ag land, uh, but it's 100 percent blamed for the cities having a dirty water, dirty river. Um, so our nitrogen and phosphorus for us, we're under a huge microscope in, in the St. Croix watershed. And, uh, and so phosphorus, we just, we don't even bother. I can, I can retail phosphorus. If you got enough money to be buying DAP and MAP, you're great. That's awesome. But otherwise actually manage it and 
different lecture, but context of my area, nitrogen and phosphorus are, are serious. And let's burn a quick time out to share a message from our sponsor. Montag Manufacturing has rolled out two new industry-first products. Cover Crop Plus is the first metering system dedicated to cover crop seeds able to accurately meter even the smallest seeds like Covercress. It can be mounted to tillage implements, combines, and self-propelled high-clearance machines. The second new product is the Mammoth Size Model 2224 with 13 or 16 tons capacity for producers running with larger strip-till implements. For more information, Visit the Montag website or your Montag dealer. Now let's get back to the conversation. This person says we're transitioning to strip till from conventional tillage. We normally chop our stock with a stock chopper. Should we leave them or continue to chop them? Well, I uh, actually asked a neighbor to let me try strip tilling his corn stocks that he had uh, run a chopping head on after I got through all the drifts of corn stalks, I said, thank you very much. And, and, uh, we stayed with, we just run a conventional corn head. And, um, in our case, it's, uh, uh, 30, So it just chews it off to the height you're running. And that's about it. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't even have a combine. I have our neighbor. We've had a good relationship right next to each other for the last 20 years. So we work together combining, but, uh, we're going to probably do something a little bit different. Uh, my neighbor has a, a Great Plains a vertical till and with a cedar on it. I think we're probably going to get our residue digester on and, and hit it with that and then put our strips in. I'll boldly say if you got a, if a massive residue problem, you got a soil life problem, not a residue problem. <clears throat> I, I would say it's in context of his area and environment and, and tools that he has. I would not, if you had a non-chopping corn head, you could update to knife rolls. Um, I wouldn't spend money just to process stocks unless it's a problem for your strip till unit. Um, we've got the Lexion heads, so I can shut them on and off and come springtime. I mean, we, there is, I, science will say you have soil life going year round, but I'm still, yeah, it slows from, down <laughs> from October to end of April. Nothing's happening, and and yet if we can go in there and you just see, you know, a majority by by late April, early May, a majority of that residue is gone, and it's just worm castings everywhere. Like that, that is that is amazing. But with a good row cleaner on the strip tiller, quality strip tiller unit, it's. It's up to him. The snowpack thing, I've done a bunch of side-by-sides um, compared to the neighbors that run, till the stocks down. And the tall stocks were drought-prone soil, even though we get tons and tons of rain and snow. Um, by leaving them stocks tall, they collect the sunlight. You can see that snow melt down that stock and, uh, and, and start to expose the soil. And I've got it on film many times of our standing stocks with all that snowpack is still ready to go sooner than the chisel plowed stocks across the road. And it's, it's hard for your brain to wrap around change and things are different. Um, again, I, I, I wouldn't spend money on things mother nature can do unless it's a problem. I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, looking for a little advice on anybody that knows anything about long-term cereal rye for cover crop and let you enlighten you a little bit on our background here a little bit. I've been doing uh, strip till since 92. 
Uh, we did cover crop plots uh, in the early 80s with our uh, county extension. Um, so we kind of learned about the difficulties with cereal rye back then. Um, we currently strip till, put down dry K uh, with the strip bar. Our soils are rolling in heavy clay, so we can't do nothing in the fall. Uh, and we generally run our strip cart 24 hours ahead of the planter. We do twin row corn and beans and that. Um, we've also got some livestock on the landscape. We've got cow-calf operation. Um, I'm an agronomist as well. Um, do custom app and scouting in the area. Um, so my problem is with cover crops through the CSP thing, we ventured back into it again, uh, oh, probably dinking around with it about 10, 12 years now, had excellent results with tillage radishes, uh, stuff like that. But uh, local soil and water people are kind of begging us. It's like, well, why don't you play around cereal rice is why I learned got my butt kicked in the 80s on it. I says, we left 80 bushel of corn on the table with cereal rye. Well, management has changed. There's a better way to do it, plant green. Okay, so we started that and we dinked around with uh, skip row wheat and skip row rye for covers, planting into that skip. Uh, so we have no competition for our twin row beans and our twin row corn and strip tilling. It's easy to do on RTK, but uh, I've had great results with that stuff up until this year. Last fall, we kind of got a little carried away. We planted pretty much every acre on our farm into cereal rye, and we drilled it on seven and a half inch space. Um, well, Mother Nature kicked us with the drought this year, so uh, right now it appears in uh, several counties that I do work in in our area, uh, probably the worst crops that I've seen in the country are in our area following that cereal rye for cover crop. Uh, it doesn't matter how or when or what or who. Uh, the only difference is, I guess, if you went to the right church and prayed to the right guy and you got rain on your farm and then the next guy didn't, that's the only difference. But looking for some advice on this, uh, mm. Our plots in the 80s showed us that uh, oats and barley worked awesome because it was dead in the spring. It gave you a ground cover, didn't have to kill it. Uh, wheat, triticale, rye, you got to uh, burn that stuff off with herbicides. So that's a cost, but we didn't see any yield reduction on the next crop like we did with the rye. So coming back now in the future here, what we're currently doing, um, you know, this year our corn and our beans are probably half size, 100% uh, of our nitrogen's tied up. Um, there's plots in the area by other watershed districts that show that uh, a two week difference in terminating that rye, the corn is double in size. You know, and I, I can't fathom that this is not gonna be reflected in yield come harvest time, you know, sure the jury's not out yet, but there's gonna be a, a yield drag, a yield drop here. Um, so it, but you know, we're on pretty tough soil. Uh, generally the rye is planted after corn silage or soybeans in our area. We've planted rye as late as Thanksgiving. 
And miraculously, you can row it at Christmas time. We're close to the shore of Lake Michigan, so we got that microclimate that keeps us a little warmer in the fall. But historically, our erosion events, our heavy, heavy erosion happens in the spring months. And that's when we're targeting our cereal rye and covers to have a root mass to hold that soil. So I guess my question is to you three guys on stage or anybody else in this room here that has experienced uh, extreme detrimental effect with cereal rye. I had a corn to enlighten me a little bit on what they did to it or if maybe oh. things haven't progressed here as far as they should have been. Oh, uh, yeah, we kind of got a, a, a good trial on that this year. Uh, we had a, a bunch of prevent plant and we put rye cover on it last fall. So at uh, early April, or not early April, the snow was still on the ground, but uh, May, uh, early May, we sprayed it, sprayed it out. It was just starting to get going. Uh, it was probably a foot high. Um, frost was out, you know, eight inches or so, so it held, up, held the sprayer up good. Uh, so we killed it out entirely ahead of, because knowing we were going to go with corn and I didn't want to try planting green with corn, but uh, we put 50 units of N down in the strip and our strip, uh, the fertilizer side of the strip goes about five inches deep. The other side of the strip is basically a closing disc and that goes about three inches deep. So we had a, we had dead rye and we had nitrogen in the strip. And in our case, and we have, we've flown on rye I don't know, I'm going to say three, four, five different years. Um, and always, if we have that nitrogen there, the rye is just a non-issue. It's like, you. I think of it as like continuous corn, I mean, as far as residue. But for us, we have to get the nitrogen in the ground. It can't. You can't just spread it on top and, and unless it rains or it's really wet, like I described earlier. But in general, if you get that nitrogen in the ground underneath the residue, whether it's continuous corn or rye, it, it works. In our area, very few people are doing cover crops ahead of corn. Um, my neighbor got really burned with cereal rye, and he's been putting winter barley in, less uh, lelopathic uh, problems and stuff. But um, I don't know. The corn's too valuable. Guys aren't trying it. Uh, the first question I'd say, why just rye? The second question is, you, you got cattle? Seize the opportunity. If you're making silage, I'd be out there at V3, loading that thing up with buckwheat and annual rye grab, just, just some oats, just other great stuff, hairy veg. Oh, man, you add value to that at silage. Um, and uh, everybody wants winter rye because it, I don't know what the catch was with cover crops in the last few years. It's just everybody has to do winter rye. And this year, everybody and their brother had pictures of just rye killing that corn crop. And that, that comes down to species selection versus the problem you're trying to fix, management of that thing, timing of termination, that kind of stuff. Uh, winter rye is kind of funny because if I'm in the Red River Valley, I'm going to terminate winter rye standing up with chemical because I want sunlight to hit my soil. If I'm up by us or Western Wisconsin, uh, I'm going to roll that rye down to get as much cover on that soil as I can to protect that soil from the sunlight. 
and so it's the same tool being used quite differently around. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, you got potentials of a carbon sink there. I, I, I don't know how to defend a, the yield loss on a year like this, it's an extreme scenario. Um, I'll say that yield doesn't indicate success of a cover crop. When you're first starting cover cropping, we're trained as corn and bean guys to go into our co-op and, and well, it's a two bushel response. And every product we ever do is a two, two bushel response or five bushel response. And um, I'd say yield has no indication on success of a cover crop when you're beginning because what did it do for you? You already had your system perfected to the best you could every year you adapt and change. And so what possibly could that cover crop do in a couple months time of it being there to offer you more yield? The success of the cover crop, did it, did it fix the erosion you were at? Did it change soil structure, water infiltration, or runoff, anything like that? Down the line, can we start checking, you know, carbon PFLAs and did it add anything to the soil, soil life, texture, smell? It's, it's a, it's a much larger conversation. We'll never leave here if we actually want to talk about the soil and the cover crops and, and management of it. But in your situation, you got cattle. There's nothing you can do wrong. You have cows. That is your garbage disposal of the farm. It's embarrassing to let the cows that what should have been a good cornfield and now why is he grazing that field? But you, you turn it over to a AUMs and uh, you can still make money but I mean, we can joke, you can't have a failure with cattle, but it's painful, but I, I, I seize the opportunity with them cows. It, uh, yeah. Um, someone asked, what can you do to avoid a yield hit when switching to strip till? Hmm. Good question. Uh, we, in our case, we started no tilling in 82. Then we uh, ridge tilled for a while. Then in, was it 93 it, in, the, in the 90s it got so wet that that getting the ridge till you know getting it all done the cultivating part was impossible so we we actually uh no-tilled on top of the ridges for a while and then it's like well huh, i guess the next step is to just strip till and uh so that that we've always had that residue and and uh just used to it and there's kind of an aside to all these comments about, um, you know, you got to rip and you got to use cover crops, to get soil stability. In our case, we run a, a thousand bushel grain cart and it goes wherever it needs to go. Um, I make no attempt to run on tram lines because so one of our best operators, uh, we, like I said, we have a lot of hills. Some fields are very scenic. He would go to the top of that hill every time you dump He'd drive to the top of the nearest hill and just sit there and look around. And uh, we do not see, we when we look at our uh, yield maps or look at our planting down pressure maps in the spring, you can't see any evidence of where that grain cart went. So it, it kind of makes me wonder, we're, we've been doing the cover crop just because that's the thing to do, but we already have a lot of residue. We don't get stuck with a combine regardless of how much it rains. Um, so, you know, maybe we should not worry about it and just uh, be happy with all the residue we have. We didn't really have any uh, yield drag when we went to, to strip till. Um, you know, I was trying to compete against the legacy. My grandfather had 150 bushel corn in 1945, and 
My dad had 207 bushel corn in, 2000, in 1958, but I wasn't able to break 250 till I got uh, Roundup Ready corn. But when we went to strips, you know, um, we were getting up for too long. We got about 285, so I didn't feel we had a yield drag. I would think I'd come back to checking the basics. Um, we got some some sandier stuff. Um, that if, if you're making a quality strip, make sure you're doing a good job. You're not having air pockets. Um, you're not trenching too deep. Your berming discs aren't creating water paths next to the berm. Uh, if, that, if that seed trench is good, then it would come back to planter performance. And um, our soil isn't that sensitive, but out in central Minnesota, you uh, visit some farmers out there and um, Carl, Paul, if you've noticed it, well, you just you said you got off strip and did just fine. Yeah. Um, some of them guys down by Grove City and some of that more black flat area, they'll claim if they get off the strip a little bit, some drift or whatever, they can see the the little bit of depression in the corn. The stand isn't quite as good as on the strip. Um, I can't fathom in an honest scenario if you did the basics where you would lose money coming from full till to strip till. Um, we've got knobs in the field. Uh, you know, you got the Anoka sand plains to the west, southwest of us, but we've got knobs in the field that, you know, half a percent organic matter and you'll never make a puddle no matter how big the hose is running. It just, it's a coffee filter. And the strip till has allowed us to go into spots like that, that on our yield map, um, the good is still good. That, that didn't change a whole lot. But if you got this little couple acre knob out in the middle that when you're a conventional till or no till, the maps looked very similar in the big red. And after some years of strip till and covers, now it's kind of green, light green, yellow, and the red isn't just this perfect shape. It's coming back and that average, you know, and instead of having a 30 or 40 bushel corn on that spot when the rest of the field, you know, is 150, um, you know, that spot is now 80 and 90 bushel corn. And so I, I, I am racking my brain to, other than a mistake between the strip till and planter, a soil scenario where strip till would go backwards. Good advice. Uh, and with that, since we're about out of time here, I'll ask you, all three of you, uh, for any final thoughts or piece of advice that you'd give everyone here with us today. Oh, just got to stick your neck out and do whatever you're going to do next to the highway and let everybody see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm the worst farmer in three townships, but, you know, just keep on trying stuff. Yeah, the, 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 there's quite a few people here today that we got to meet that are getting into strip till for the first time. And, and it's kind of neat, like, just, just do it. Like, they're... Pfft. It's no good. The covers and and the weird things and and stuff like that. Yep, yep. Like Paul, well, do that <laughs> out back on a small scale. If you you know now with the technology of all this stuff, you can be doing rate trials on the go as you're going. You're not out setting up stakes anymore while you're driving. You just up and down rates and your yield map, which just comes. You don't even have to remember where it was. You got your application maps. Got your harvest maps. Um, do your, you know, for fertility's local, do your own research in, in that kind of stuff and have some fun with And that'll wrap things up for this week's edition of the Strip Till Farmer Podcast. Many thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, thanks for listening.